0: Welcome back, friends. It is time for another pot of tea and a story from the crowded bookshelves of my study at the History Obscura Reading Room, which has grown so large, sometimes I think the very walls are expanding. I think you'll find tonight's story rather fitting. It's about a certain beverage we all know and love, but perhaps we don't know it as well as we think, hmm? Let's begin. Once upon a time, long ago in a beautiful little kingdom called England, there was a queen called Elizabeth Tudor. Queen Elizabeth ruled England during the 16th century, which was a very interesting time in history. Also called the Age of Discovery, the 15th and 16th centuries in Europe, saw hundreds of explorers and sailing ships press further into the oceans than they ever had before. Sailors like Francis Drake, Christopher Columbus, and Vasco da Gama organized expeditions to cross the Atlantic and see what they might find out there where the maps all ended. Of course, as we all know, the American continents were soon discovered, or rediscovered but we'll discuss that in the future, shall we? (laughs) Under Queen Elizabeth's authority, English explorers tried to set up a colony in the New World that would protect England's claims to future trade within the area. Spanish, Portuguese, French, and Dutch colonies had already been started, and realizing that England's relative economic position was in danger of collapsing, Elizabeth allowed Walter Raleigh, to establish a settlement on the North Atlantic island of Roanoke. Unfortunately for the Roanoke settlers, who quickly found themselves short on supplies and without enough time to grow more food before winter, war between Spain and England erupted, cutting off their supply line. When someone was finally able to return to Roanoke, the people had all disappeared having moved on to the nearby Croatoan islands with native tribespeople to try their luck there. That was in the year 1590. Queen Elizabeth's disappointment that the expensive venture had been fruitless stopped her from consenting to any more formal settlement expeditions in her name. She was not, however, content to step back and let her European counterparts claim everything for themselves, So, as everyone looked pointedly to the west, Elizabeth looked to the east. Explorers from the Netherlands, Spain, and Portugal had already been busy mapping routes through the Indian Ocean for decades. They found exotic silk fabrics, spices, opium, and tea to bring back home and sell for a nice profit. These items were of equal importance to England, and so the Queen decided it was time to establish an English monopoly on such goods. She issued a royal charter to the East India Company in the year 1600, granting them the sole English license to trade with Asia. Her decision would have a huge impact on the future of England, India, and Western culture as a whole. The venture was a complete success. The East India Company first landed at Surat, in India's northwestern region, placing its first factory there. Bit by bit, the company's wealthy English owners bought land for more factories, and even brought in the English Navy to beat back its Dutch and Portuguese competitors throughout India. Military presence quickly became constant at the trading company's outposts and piers, helping the company corner the largest part of the market, for items like cinnamon, cassia, cardamom, ginger, and turmeric. Along with these spices, the East India Trading Company brought home opium and samples of tea from China. Queen Elizabeth was probably 67 years of age when she first tried a cup of steaming liquid brewed from tea leaves brought from Cathay, which is what one called China in those days. Though tea did not have quite the same overwhelming success in England that was enjoyed by opium, it did steadily increase in popularity. Half a century after Elizabeth's death in 1603, tea from China was being served in London's coffeehouses. At first, the drink was consumed only by curious, adventurous customers and sold very little. By 1667, however... The British East India Company deemed the tea market large enough for its own importations. The company made its first order from Bantam, Indonesia that year, bringing 143 pounds of the stuff home for sale in 1669. These are the instructions for making tea, according to a servant of one Baron Herbert in London. He wrote the following in 1672. The directions for tea are a quart of spring water just boiled, to which put a spoonful of tea, and sweeten to the palate with candy sugar. As soon as the tea and sugar are in, the steam must be kept in as much as may be, and let it lie half or quarter of an hour in the heat of the fire, but not boil. The little cups must be held over the steam before the liquid be put in. Future Queens Victoria and Elizabeth II, both descended from Queen Elizabeth I, would use a cup of hot tea to greet important visitors. Thanks to Queen Victoria, even the word tea is still synonymous with the midday meal in Great Britain. Under the British Raj, trade was still paramount to the relationship between India and Great Britain. With tea at an all-time high in terms of popularity, farmers in the Indian state of Assam were persuaded to cultivate only tea. These plantations took time, experimentation, and a great deal of work before they began to yield usable product. And as the industry found its feet, Great Britain continued to supply the bulk of its tea from China. China's tea industry was ancient and fine-tuned to perfection with a processing method that no one outside of its own factories was allowed to learn. Indian farmers were keen to try growing Chinese strains of tea in Assam, but there was a big problem. China ruled that exporting live tea plants or their seeds was illegal. Furthermore, the Chinese exporters would not divulge the secrets of how their tea was processed. Desperate as always for a monopoly on Britain's most popular eastern products, the East India Trading Company sent a Scotsman by the name of Robert Fortune on a trip to China's interior in 1848. The region was completely off-limits to foreigners, meaning that to avoid suspicion, Fortune had to disguise himself as a wealthy Chinese merchant. He traveled throughout China with a Chinese man posing as his servant, which meant that Fortune could often stand back out of direct view while his servant, Wang, took care of any arrangements. Fortune's instructions were as follows. Besides the collection of tea plants and seeds from the best localities for transmission to India, It will be your duty to avail yourself of every opportunity of acquiring information as to the cultivation of the tea plant and the manufacture of tea as practiced by the Chinese. Careful to keep a few paces behind Wang, Robert Fortune gained entry to a green tea factory by pretending to be a rich Mandarin official. Curious about how the tea he enjoyed so much was created, Wang bowed to the factory superintendent repeatedly, asking if his master could be allowed a tour. Politely, the superintendent welcomed the pair right in. It must have been an amazing sight to Fortune, who was a botanist himself and very interested in how everything worked. The factory was warm and dry, fragranced with the scent of that precious tea, Hanging on the wall of the entryway was calligraphy quoting 8th century Chinese writer Lu Yu's book on tea, entitled Cha Ching. To quote, The best quality tea must have The creases like the leather boots of tartar horsemen Curl like the dewlap of a mighty bullock Unfold like a mist rising out of a ravine Gleam like a lake touched by a zephyr and be wet and soft like earth newly swept by rain. Once inside the mysterious factory, Fortune learned all the secrets he and his fellow Britons had waited so long to know. The tea leaves, once picked from the fields, were laid out on huge woven trays to bake in the sunshine for one to two hours. Once the leaves were deemed ready, They were added to a huge cooking pot over a coal furnace and stirred until the essential oils of the tea leaves were drawn out, moistening the contents of the pot. When the workers were finished stirring the tea leaves in the pot, they piled the batch on a large table, working them back and forth over bamboo rollers. The rollers brought out the rest of the oil from the leaves, which were then wrung out to remove excess water creating green pools on the table after rolling the tea returned to the cooking pot when the leaves had finally been dried cooked rolled recooked and piled on a special table workers gathered to sort them according to quality the smallest leaves were selected for the highest quality teas while large leaves and bits of stem comprised the medium grade tea At the bottom of the rankings was the dust. At the end of the process, what began as a lush basket piled with tea leaves had been reduced to just enough to brew a pot of tea. Fortune continued exploring as many gardens, plantations, and factories as he could during more than a decade in China, and he managed to smuggle as many as 20,000 live specimens of Chinese tea out of the country and into India. To keep the plants alive, he encased them in Wardian boxes, which were new inventions constructed from glass. Due to the long, sometimes treacherous journey, the first shipment of 13,000 plants was mostly damaged, only 80-some adult plants remaining healthy enough to plant. This didn't deter Fortune, however. This time, He planted thousands of stolen seeds into soil inside the Wardian boxes before shipping them, and, just as he had hoped, thousands of healthy tea plants arrived ready to transplant by the time they reached India. Those smuggled plants that managed to survive and reproduce in Assam relied entirely on the hard work of plantation workers during the British Raj, who really got the industry on its feet, During this time, it was not only Indian farmers working on the plantations, but illegally hired workers whom fortune had arranged to bring in from China. In the space of just a few decades, India's tea exports to Great Britain outpaced those of China. It was the ideal relationship for growers and buyers, and in a way, tea came to strengthen the cultural ties between India and Great Britain. The British took theirs in fine porcelain cups with lumps of sugar imported from empirical holdings in the Caribbean. Indians took theirs with milk, sugar, and an array of aromatic spices. In 1858, Queen Victoria had the great honor of being named Empress of India, following two and a half centuries of growing British economic and military sovereignty in that country. India's great rebellion rocked the country as many Indians who served as military troops under Britain's authority mutinied. Both sides took aim at the other, with hundreds killed across India. The political unrest was resolved with a huge reorganization of Britain's policies in India. First, the East India Trading Company, through which Britain had gained its political power in the first place, was dissembled. British Parliament passed the Government of India Act, which passed administrative duties of the former company to the British crown. The realm came to be known as British India, and the subsection of government known as the British Raj. Raj meaning rule in Hindustan. The tea trade boomed, and Queen Victoria's great British Empire grew right alongside it to become the largest in the world, With land stretching from Canada to South Africa, Britain became a world leader in the Industrial Revolution. The middle class grew, with more people than ever before attending school, learning to read, write, and keep accounts. Today, the Victorian era evokes notions of well-mannered, well-educated gentlemen and women sipping tea and eating delicate sandwiches while discussing the business and politics of the day. Behind them we envision, a bookcase full of volumes on philosophy and the arts. It was thus, quite ironically, such a picturesque image was forged from stolen Chinese tea grown by Indian farmers on economically annexed land. And let's not forget that invaluable sugar, imported from the slave plantations of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. India's tea industry was a complete success, eventually overtaking China as the world's primary producer of tea in 1889. Today's Assam tea, which accounts for half of India's tea production and 128 million kilograms of product per year, is a hybrid of India's own wild tea and those Chinese plants stolen by Robert Fortune some 160 years ago. Just like a Scotsman to pull a stunt like that, and just like England to take all the credit, well, it has become late. I hear the cats gathering for their midnight feeding, and we don't want the Lycoy among them getting too hungry, not with the moon almost full. Cherish your tea, friends. Good night. <laughs>